Well, go with me in your Bibles this morning. We're going to Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatian churches. We're in the third chapter, and God willing, we'll come to the end of this chapter today in our study together. In uh, a way of overview, we're going to be looking at Abraham, Moses, here the, the cast, all right? Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and how does that impact us? We're, we're part of this story. We're part of what God is doing in, as the church. And how God has gone to great lengths to bring you into his family, to know you, to adopt you, to love you. We can easily err in thinking too little of ourselves, belittling ourselves. Oh, I'm worthless. I'm no good. I'm trash. And this has happened to me. And that's how I'm, I'm down in the dumps. I'm worthless. And the other side of that, is I'm awesome, I'm amazing. The Lord should have broke the mold when he made me. I mean, have you seen me? It's just, I mean, I'm amazing. Pride, despair. Either one of those extremes is not seeing ourselves rightly. It's not seeing ourselves through the lens of scripture. It's not seeing ourselves the way that God sees us. If we understand our true value, we will come to realize and embrace that our true value is not based upon our performance. It's not based on what we do and what we don't do. It's based on who we are and who we are in. To be in Christ. This leads us to wonder. This leads us to worship. Follow along in your Bibles. Galatians chapter 3, where verse 15 is where we'll begin this morning. To give a human example, brothers... Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean, the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then when the law was our guardian until Christ, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. 
heirs according to promise. This is the word of God. Now, if this sounded a little bit like a legal argument, like, am I, uh, I mean, I got to be an attorney to understand this. This sounds, that's the kind of argument that it is. Paul is drawing in the net to close, shut the case that we are not justified by works, we are justified by faith. Some of you work in engineering and, and in design. You understand what it is to have a prototype. You understand Henry Ford, the prototype of the assembly line, the automobile. And we're still, you probably came to church today in something that is still functioning out of that model. Abraham is the prototype for Christians. Abraham was saved by faith. He is the prototype of faith. How does God justify sinners? Look at Abraham. It's so important. And if this truly settles down in your heart, this will lead you to worship because you'll understand where your true value is and what God has done to redeem you, to call you his own is no small thing. And so you will worship. There's really two ways. We've been saying this for a few weeks. How people try to make themselves right. How they try to make themselves clean before God. One way works, one way doesn't. One way is, I'll do it. I'll try harder. I'll try to do the right things. I'll try not to do the bad things. And oh, great. We're not even to 8.30 and I've already blown another day. That, that we're, we're human. The other way that works is trusting. It's not trying what I can do and not do. It's trusting in what God has done. It's finished. So I can rest in that. And that relationship then changes everything about me. That grace is given at the starting line, not at the finish line. That we're adopted and we're remade. We're changed. So here come the Judaizers. Like, did the pastor just curse? If you haven't been here in the series, is that a bad word? I don't know. Am I supposed to say that? There are the people who are trying to mix faith with works. Well, that's great that you've trusted in Jesus, but did you know about Abraham and Moses and all of the law? Oh, you didn't know about that? Gentile people? Well, here we are to save the day. Oh, you can't eat that. Oh, on this day you do this. Oh, you can't have that. All of the laws, here they go. All the feasts, all, but not all of them, the ones that they observed. So here's our aim this morning. When we consider all that God has done to adopt us into his family, when we consider this, there's four truths from this text that bring us to worship. And it's almost an interchangeable word, which is wonder. Like to really understand what God has done it leaves you, I mean, this, I love when the time change happens this last week. And if you're driving when that sun comes up and it just, it just, man, the sky on a cold morning and you can just see everything. I've never said, looking at a sunrise, I just am amazing. <laughs> I mean, I'm just drawn to think about myself. It's not, it's always like, wow. And then soon, the, the frost will happen in the middle of the night where there's, there's all that condensation in the air and the fog comes through and the temperature drops. And then all of those trees get decorated. You know what I'm talking about? Better than any Christmas tree. And then the sun comes up 
And it's like, wow, it's just amazing. It's like everything is crystallized. That doesn't leave me saying, and I was just thinking how awesome of a husband I am. It just leaves me in wonder at God does that with mist and cold temperatures and what looks like dead trees. Some of them are dead. He's amazing. He's awesome. I can't do that with whatever. I he just does it with what he just is beautiful. Leads us to wonder, leads us to worship. The first truth we see in verses 15 to 18 is this. The promises of God are locked in. The promises of God are locked in. I want this to take root in your heart this morning, that the promises of God, when he makes a promise, he doesn't do what you and I do. And sure, oh, did I say that? Oh, I'll be there. Yeah, I'll help you. I'm tired. Oh, I can't really do that. I can't back that up. The promises of God are locked in. And to Abraham, God made a covenant. And this is what we have to understand. Nothing would stop this promise from being fulfilled in Abraham. With God, God made a covenant with Abraham. And this covenant is locked in. It's never going away. God will do all that he said he would do. Nothing could stop it. Verse 15 says this, to give a human example. Let me use, Paul is saying, let me use a human analogy. Brothers, little term of endearment there, pulling his arm around him through a letter. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Okay, so Paul's using a human example, a human testament, or think about someone's, so-and-so's last will and testament. Here's what I want done with what has belonged to me. It's the last will and testament. Once that's set, once that's ratified, once that's settled, if they pass away, you can't come and say, well, I know they said that the oldest son would get the car, but they really meant the chair in the, on the deck, and that car was supposed to go to me. I know that's what they wanted. No, well, it says right here, and he signed it. This is who the car goes to, and actually, you get the chair on the deck. Oh, man, bummer. You can't change it. It's set. It cannot be altered. The document is closed. It's settled. It's not open-ended. God would not alter his promise to Abraham. By the time the law comes, Abraham's been dead a long time. So here comes the Judaizers. Question, how was Abraham justified? Oh, Father Abraham. He, he, well, he didn't have the law yet, but he kept the law. Okay, hold that thought. Let's just see if that's true. Let's walk that dog. Let's see where it goes, right? Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into his offsprings, referring to many, but one. And to your offspring, and the Galatians might, might have been saying, who's he talking about? Oh, let me answer that. Let me break it down. It's Jesus. Abraham needed Jesus. Through Abraham's seed comes Jesus. And Moses is going to need Jesus. And all Israelites need Jesus. All the descendants of Abraham through Ishmael, they need Jesus. You and me this morning, you need Jesus. Your neighbors need Jesus. Your family members need Jesus. If you forget everything else I've said in the sermon today, remember that. You need Jesus. The world needs Jesus. So what about the promises then that God made to Abraham? Did God's promises depend on Abraham's obedience? Did they depend upon his works? What's the answer? 
No, they didn't. This is a covenant. This is a relationship. I have three daughters. No matter what they do, great, bad, and different, they're always going to be my daughters. We're in a covenant relationship. They're mine. We're familiar with contracts today. People in a contract and people break their word. They say they're going to do something and they don't do it. They make a promise and they don't follow through on their promise. When God makes a covenant, this is relationship. Contract, you have a job, you don't show up. You know, you just stop showing up at work and like, I can't believe they fired me. Like, well, you didn't show up. How long are they going to keep your spot at the desk if you aren't there? Oh, yeah, good point. I have an obligation. There's a contract. But a covenant is in relationship. Now, specifically, this covenant from God to Abraham, Genesis 12, but then in Genesis 15. It's part of our reading this week as you prepare for a small group. Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham. He makes a covenant with him. Uh, I've seen uh, 20 promises that God made to Abraham. When God makes a covenant, you've got to understand how covenants were made in that time period. A covenant would be made between people, and they would take an animal, a beast. They would cut it in half. That's gross and bloody. And they would lay it cut. Here's part A and part B. And then in making a covenant, they would walk between the pieces. A little bit like roadkill. They would walk between the pieces and they would say, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, I'll make me like this. Okay, that's pretty serious, right? You're like, ooh, that's pretty bad if you don't do what you, say, what you said you're going to do. So they would walk through that. Here's the thing. When God made a covenant with Abraham, here's these various animals later. Abraham, God just put him to sleep. God walked through that covenant. He said, I got this, Abraham. This is going to happen. You just stay over there, fall asleep. Kind of Adam fell asleep. Here's your wife. Abraham, here, you go to sleep. God walks through. This will happen. This covenant is permanent, unbreakable. I'm going to bless the world through your seed. This will happen. It's reiterated in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13, 14, and 15. And you know, when you stop and think about this, that God passed through between those animals, one day, the seed of Abraham would absolutely be put on a cross because Abraham broke the covenant. Abraham wasn't faithful. Abraham needed Jesus. And Jesus would suffer and die for Abraham, for Abraham's descendants, and for the world so that God would be just and the justifier of all who believe. So there's a chosen line, the seed, a chosen line through Abraham. And here we begin to see the promises given to Abraham and Sarah. And you are in old age, but you're going to have a child. And Sarah, when the angels come and they visit, she laughs, are you kidding me? I'm, you know how old I am? Oh my goodness, this isn't going to happen. How is this going to happen? Hey, your wife just laughed. Oh, not me, not me. It's going to happen. Time goes on, no son, getting older. Sarah comes up with the idea, hey, Abraham, I have the, you know, the Lord is not faithful in keeping his promise, so let's, let's help God out. Listen, whenever that's the idea, I need to help God out. He's not doing it fast enough. He's not getting it done. Let me get it done. A bad idea. So, Abraham, why don't you have two wives? Let's, let's do things that way. Um, that's adultery. Abraham slept with Hagar. Here comes Ishmael, a son. And they try to accomplish God's will their way. Never works. 
They should have waited. They didn't. That's not the chosen seed. That's not the chosen son. There are people all around this planet today who follow Islam and say, that's the line. They need Jesus. There are people around the world that came through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and down through, and they say, no, no, we're okay with God because we have the right ancestry. They need Jesus. Abraham, Sarah, finally comes Isaac. Abraham, Hagar, comes Ishmael. But Abraham also had Keturah he took as a wife after Sarah died. Who's not included in the seed, the chosen seed? Zimron, Jokshan, in case you're looking for baby names, all right, okay. Uh, where was I? I lost my spot. Midan, Midian, Ishbak, there's a good one, or Shua. Those are all Keturah's children. Not through them, it was through the son of the promise. So don't forget this because it's going to come back up in Galatians, but the son of the law and the son of the promise. And they are opposed to each other. Verse 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. Verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So here's the thing. The law came, Mount Sinai, 430 years after Abraham. Now think about this. The law could not add to or take away from the gospel, couldn't take away from the promise to Abraham. So was Abraham justified? And the Judaizers would have said, yes. How? Oh, he kept the law. Uh, No, no, he didn't. He was justified by faith. It was prior to circumcision. It was prior to the law. And how was he declared righteous? By faith. Salvation has always been by faith, by looking to Christ and not to ourselves. So here's the deal. If, if I promised my children, you know, sometimes they go out for dinner on Sunday afternoons. If I told one of my children, like, hey, I'll, I'll give you money after, after church. I'll take care of so you can go eat with your friends. And then I found out, you know, their room wasn't clean. Uh, they didn't walk the dogs. They just, you know, shut the door on them somewhere. So who knows what's going on there? And they're you know, behind on the schoolwork. You know what fires off in me? It's all law. Oh, man, I already promised them money. I already gave my word, and oh, they've blown it, and I didn't even know about it. So now I want to say, okay, I'll give you money. Oh, here it comes. But... Condition, 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 and, I, and here it is, and I'm probably going to get dad speech number 432, and, and I didn't know it or I wouldn't have said it earlier. Does that happen with God? No. He knows the end from the beginning. He graciously gave us his son, knowing our rooms were a mess, our brains are a mess, our hearts are a mess, our thought life's a mess, everything about us is a mess, and he in love came and lived the life we could never live and died the death that we deserve to die, knowing we're a bunch of messes. See, I I can get the law thing going easy. Well, I'll do for you, and of course it's out of love, but I didn't know that. You got me. You burned me once. You know, shame on you. Burn me twice. Won't happen. That's not grace, and that's not God. That's not the heart of the father. Abraham received a promise from God. 
Abraham would mess up repeatedly. He didn't keep the law. But God's promises were locked in to Abraham. He was given grace. He was given an inheritance. What do you do to get an inheritance? You either have to be adopted in the family or born into the family to be part of the inheritance. Abraham was related to God on basis of relationship, not on performance. This is a grace-based covenant. That an inheritance is based upon relationship, not on the basis of performance. Because listen, when them kids are born, you got a little one back there, what are they performing? Every now and then they'll smile. I got a little smile out of little James this morning. Like, yes, he said hi. Okay, performance, they don't, the, the things they perform in usually smell. Okay, so our love is not connected to like, whoa, that was awful. You're out. Okay, sickness and everything else I don't even need to mention. It's love. We're in a relationship. And so I will put up with all of the sleepless nights and all of the smelly things because we're in a relationship and I love you. It's not just because I have to. It's my job. I make job description. Here's your baby. Here's the job description. It's love. So it is with the heart of the father. And then how did Abraham respond? In radical obedience. In amazing obedience. So was the law useless? No. God wouldn't do anything pointless. Even with our suffering, it's never pointless. It's never without a purpose. There's always a purpose in our pain. So why did Israel need the law if Abraham was justified by faith? If Abraham was justified by faith, then why did he even give the law to Moses on Mount Sinai? What was the point? That should be the question that we're asking. Good question. Number two. Truth number two is the standard of God locks up. The promises of God are locked in, but the standard, the law of God, it locks us up. It locks us down. God gave his law through Moses on Mount Sinai. Now think about the timeline. In Egypt, he redeemed them, then he gave them the law. Redemption, then comes the law. So the law, keeping the law, didn't get them redeemed out of Egypt. God redeemed them out of Egypt. And then he graciously gave them the law. So why then the law? Verse 19, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Here's the deal. The law reviews our problem. It's like a mirror. It points out our flaws. It points out our filth. That we can't keep the Ten Commandments we, you know, in the Old Testament, there's 613 commandments in the book of the law. First five books. I can't keep one of the 10. How am I supposed to keep all of them? I can't. The law was added because of our transgressions. And the word that Paul uses, it highlights the point, the purpose of developing and becoming more like Christ, encouraging the Galatians to holiness, which is not on their own. It's not something they can do on their own. The law was put into place through angels by an intermediary. This is a difficult text to interpret. What's going on here? When God dispatched a message through angels, they obeyed. They're messengers every time. They obeyed perfectly. They did exactly what the Lord said. The law came, Moses, here's the tablets, and we blew it. The children of Israel blew it. Angels, they obeyed. An intermediary, a, media, a, a mediator means there's a problem in a relationship. God is holy, his people aren't. 
Here comes Moses. Here's the law. You be a go-between and you function in this way. The ministers of God obeyed. God's people didn't. Listen, grace is better than the law. The children of Israel were expected to keep the law of God. They couldn't. It would highlight, we need a savior. We need a deliverer. Kenneth Woos says it this way, the promise of free grace is not in the nature of a contract between two parties. God acts alone and directly when he promises salvation to anyone who will receive it by the outstretched hand of faith. That I can say with all authority and confidence this morning that if you are here this morning and you have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, that if you respond, have mercy on me. You realize the law locks you down. It's not your pathway here, do these 10 things and you will live. It's I can't do them. I need a rescuer. I need a savior. You stretch out that hand of faith and the Lord will not do what he did to Jesus on the cross. That hand was stretched out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You reach out to the father. He was forsaken so that you will not ever be. This is the gospel. The law can't cleanse us from sin. A mirror cannot clean us up. You look into a mirror, you see problems. I'd recommend, don't use the mirror to try to address the problems. Someone will come in the bathroom after you and they'll say, what happened here, right? Now I can't even see myself because there's so much smudging on the mirror. The mirror shows you the problem. The mirror does not fix the problem. The law shows us our sinfulness. The law does not fix our sinfulness. The speed limit tells you how fast to go. The speed limit doesn't legislate. It doesn't make you go that fast. It says, this is the limit. How do we respond? The law cannot cleanse us from sin. An Israelite might say, oh, I'm so glad, and they did. I'm a descendant of Abraham, so I'm good with God. Well, think about Abraham. Committed adultery. On two different occasions, in traveling in foreign countries, he told, hey, Sarah, my wife, my lovely wife, all right, ladies always know, like, what? What is up now? What's going on? You are so beautiful. What? Could you just maybe tell everybody you're my sister? Ew. Really? You're so beautiful that if they see you and they think that we're married, then they'll probably kill me so that they can have you. And uh, is he trusting the Lord at that moment? No. Eh. Strike one. Does it again. Eh. Strike two. So suddenly, if you're like, Abraham is our hope. Abraham needed Jesus. Amen? He needed a savior. It wasn't him. He blew it. He messed up. But God's covenant, his promises are locked in. Didn't catch God by surprise at all. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? <laughs> Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Beloved, the law cannot give life. It says the terms, it says the standard, but it cannot give life. 
It cannot cleanse from sin. It shows to us our sinfulness. It shows to us our problem, but it can't deal with our problem. It says you need to reach out. You need a savior. This week, we moved a piano. Oh my goodness. That thing was so heavy. If I felt any confidence of my strength and ability, moving that beast reminded me of how frail and timid and little I am. It's like, I'm trying. I was lifting with all I had. And that thing didn't move until somebody was on the other side and somebody was on the front and somebody was on the back and on the other side. And then we still struggled getting that thing out the door. It was heavy. That's the law. I I have a better chance at moving that piano by myself on my back than I do at keeping one commandment perfectly. I can't do it. Cannot do it. Verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned, listen to this terminology now, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. You see what's going on, this interplay of we're locked up, we're locked down, we're in prison. Listen, if you're in prison, you can't just say, hey, uh, yeah, um, go ahead and open this up. I'm going to run over to Kroger. I needed some things. And on the, you know, on the cell block here, we're running short on some supplies. I'll be back. Go ahead and open up. You can't go anywhere. You're locked down. You're locked in. Your freedom is gone. You can't go where you want to go. You can't do what you want to do because you're a prisoner. That's what the law does. It locks us up. It locks us down. It reveals to us our great need of a savior. We're held captive. We're under the law. We're not free. We become aware of our need for the promised seed of Abraham, which is Jesus. So that leads us to our problem, all right? So Abraham, promises are locked in. That's great. Moses, through him comes the law. God gives the law. Now we're locked up. We need a deliverer. And truth number three that leads us to wonder and leads us to worship, the Son of God leads out. Okay, we need a champion. We need a victor. We talked about this on Wednesday night in TNT. What makes a good story? And you have a villain, and you have right, and you have wrong. You need a deliverer. You need a savior. You need a rescuer. And without that, you don't have a good story. This, all stories like that are borrowed from God's plan of redemption, history. How Genesis 3 will be reversed, and Jesus is king and will be worshiped by his people forever. The Son of God leads out. Sinners are led to freedom through Jesus, Messiah. We need Jesus. We all need Jesus. Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The law served The law served as a guardian. This word in the Greek, it refers to an individual in a Roman society that was entrusted by a father, a household, the head of the household, the firstborn son, okay, so in this case, it'd be Lincoln, right, that that Jamie would, he would have a slave be entrusted with Lincoln and bring up Lincoln. He is the heir. Everything goes to him. And then this person, this slave, would go with them everywhere. They would be like a nanny, always with them, making sure the will of the father is done until the father says, I now confirm this child, my firstborn heir, full status in the family, 
all rights. So now think about this. Think about it in this term, a babysitter. Okay, when you're a baby, you don't mind somebody having a babysitter for you. If you're 16 and your parents are like, hey, the babysitter will be here in a little while, okay? Uh, we told them where the, you know, the, the tater tots are and the pizza bites and they'll be fixing that for you. And okay, just make sure you stay in. If, if you have to have that, it says there's something still immature about you. You're still not trustworthy. Something still isn't firing. You're still needing to be tutored. You're still needing to be watched, guided. The work isn't done yet. Think about this, training wheels on a bike. Those are no big deal when you're three, four. If you're 20, like, could you, could you help me put the training wheels back on my bike? I'm really having a rough go of it. I need these training wheels. I mean, what middle schooler in their right mind is like, I got a new bike for Christmas, spring comes, and they want with training wheels to roll in with all the kids watching, like pull that thing right up in there, look at those training wheels. No way, they don't want that. Why would you ever go back to riding a bike with training wheels? Them things are backwards anyway. They screw up your mind. They're like opposite. You learn, lean the wrong way and you take them things off and the kids are all, what happened now? Nothing's stopping me. That's this person, and Paul is comparing this to the law was our tutor. The law was our guardian. It locked us down to show us you need Christ to develop us, to grow us, but it couldn't accomplish that. Who wants to go back to having a babysitter? Who wants to go back to observing various things of the law and being under a guardian in that way? Nobody. That's the point Paul is making. By faith in Jesus Christ, we are elevated to the status of being a son of God. So why would anybody ever want to go back to guardianship? Dad, I know you've given me all of the household and you've appointed me as your heir, but could I please go back to having that guardian tell me everything to do and where to go and when to go, what time to go to bed, what time to get up, all of that, could you please? No. Son, now you're over the whole household. Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In that last verse, you might be thinking, is that, is that like kind of out of step with culture that he's, not, he's calling everybody sons of God? What about ladies? What about their role? Understand this in Christianity in the first century that this letter is being written and heard in the presence of men and women and children of slave and free and they just heard that they're being put into the status of being a son of God. Those are the only individuals who could be in, inherit anything. This is good news. This is grace of what God is doing. The moment of salvation, we're led out of captivity, we're led into freedom as children of God. We're all in. Paul doesn't know that everybody in the Galatian churches are all in. He says, some of you, all who are baptized into Christ, if you've come all the way to faith and you're all in, you're part of the family, you're not half in and half out. Well, I've trusted the Lord, but now I need to do these things to make it all the way. I need to have, you know, be baptized or I need to uh, speak in tongues or I need to uh, give this level in giving or I need to be doing, sharing my faith with 70 people in a week. And then that means all of these things that other people add on. 
the moment of salvation, we are all in. Fully wet. That's what the water baptism is. We watched it last week. We saw it all the way under, all the way in, brought back. Jesus died completely and was raised to life again. Amen? So when he's saying, if you're in Christ, you're all in, and these people are saying, but, but, but wait, you gotta, you gotta have these physical things done. But wait, wait, you're eating the wrong things. But wait, you gotta, here's our list. And Paul is saying, take your list and go burn it somewhere because it can't save you. It can't wash away a sin and it will ruin the church. This faith transforms everything about our lives to be in Christ to have put on Christ. So God is good. He gave the promise to Abraham. He gave the law through Moses. He gave Jesus to the world, to all who will believe. And lastly, the fourth truth is this, the family of God. This is where we come in. This is where we fit. In the family of God, this is where we radically do life together. This is completely different than any other organization. It's the church that Christ loves and he died for. We do life together together. Russ was just talking about that this morning, that we are in small group. We're in community together. We were made for fellowship. Community together. That all who are in Christ become part of God's faith, family that we've been adopted by the Father. We're connected to his children, the church. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So in Jesus Christ... We're given a new identity that we are all as one in Christ Jesus. And it's a radically different way to live. What happens in the gospel? The gospel breaks down the culture burial, cultural burial. That's what Jesus, uh, Paul is writing. He said, there's not Jew or Greek. That's gone. You're, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Well, how are Jews saved? The same way Gentiles are saved, by faith. It's grace through faith. It's Christ alone. You need Jesus. Do you know, the Pharisees would wake up in the morning. And remember, Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And they would wake up with a prayer as you hear this text that Paul just wrote. Their prayer in the morning was, Lord, I thank thee that I am not a Gentile, but a Jew. I thank thee that I'm not a dog. Oh, and I thank you also that I'm not a woman. Now, if you're a woman in the church and you're like, wow, that's, a, that's kind of offensive of a prayer. I'm not sure the dogs would have much response to that. If you're a Gentile in the church, you would be quite offended by that. Wow, you really think you're something special. So do you understand the guy who used to pray that every morning is now writing, understand at the cross, in Christ, in the gospel, in grace, there is neither Jew nor Greek. We're all saved the same way, by faith. And those cultural barriers are removed. The social class barriers, neither slave nor free. We're all free in Christ. And we can fellowship. And I've been in India, and there you have a Brahmin, and you have a Dalit, and you have people in different social statuses, but in Christ, they're brothers. They're sisters. They're one. They're the same. They're of the same value because they're made in the image of God. This is Christianity. This is beautiful in the gospel. The gospel removes the gender barrier. He says, there's no male and female. Well, what does that mean? 
Is he reversing the order of creation? He's talking about how is a man saved? By grace through faith, you need Jesus. How are women saved? By grace through faith, you need Jesus. It's the same way. And you are all sons and daughters of God. You're in the family. This isn't revoking a gender identity here. This isn't revoking the roles of men and women in a home, the men and women in the church. He's dealing with how are we justified? And so people wrongly take this text to make it say what they want to say to fit culture instead of allowing the whole Bible to confront all of culture to not hurt ourselves and others. In Matthew 19, Jesus affirmed God's order of creation and his design for the home. The point, whether we're a Jew or whether we're a Gentile, whether we're free A third of the Roman culture were slaves. Whether you're a slave, a prisoner, the sun sets you free, John 8, you're free indeed. You are free. But wait, you need to, no, you're free. Live in freedom. Whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, you need grace. You need Jesus. In Christ, we are justified and graciously given a new family. And here we're one. And if you are Christ, that last verse, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, according to promise. And you can sing that song, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. And if you've come to Christ by faith, so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. And I'm not going to carry on with all of the hand motions that go with that. No, stop it, you. All right? You can sing that one all day now for making fun of me for saying chicklets last week in my sermon. <laughs> Abraham was declared righteous. There's going to be a graphic come up on the screen. This is just a, kind of a, a snapshot of the morning. I forgot this in the first service. All right, this is what God's sovereign grace looks like. And it starts with the the fall, okay? Genesis chapter three. This is where it all went wrong. It's beautiful, it's great. Then we sinned. So where does it move through? You move through in this text, he's covered Abraham. The covenant given to Abraham. Its promises are locked in, the promises of God. You move to Moses. Here's the law. It locks us down, it locks us up. It leaves us, we need Jesus. He's our deliverer, he's our rescuer. What is Jesus preparing for us? He's made a church, we're his bride, so we're no longer under law. We need the tutor. We need the, we need the babysitter to make sure and, and let's get a committee together and we'll make sure everybody uh, has the standards that I have and, and here's my expectations and this is what you should dress like and this is what you should do, all these things and let's get more committees and more rules. No, we have Jesus. We're set free and we're in the church and we're going somewhere and Russ talked about that earlier. We have a mission. We're on a mission to make disciples. We make disciples to take the gospel to the whole world, Amen. That's where where there's a point, there's a purpose, and it's all grace. It's all God's sovereign grace. He does not depend on me, he does not need me, but I am so grateful and so thankful that he chooses to use me and will choose and uses you in in the same way. I wanna close with a a case study that wraps all of this up. Go with me in your Bible. Go to Luke chapter uh, seven. Luke chapter seven. Luke chapter seven, Jesus is at the house of a Pharisee. Pharisee's name is Simon. He goes into the house. In verse 37, you'll see it when you get there. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. 
And standing behind Jesus, behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, notice he's just thinking this. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a, what's the word? Sinner. I mean, you can just hear it coming off his tongue. Sinner. Oh. Well, what is he? Yeah, a sinner, a worse sinner. He's religious. He's in love with himself and his religion and his re- resume. And Jesus, answering, said to him, he didn't ask a question out loud. Answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have what you've been doing all night. In this case, you judged rightly. You've been sitting over there judging this woman all night, looking down your nose. She is. And if he knew who she was, oh, he's letting her touch him. And she's disgusting. And she's of the different political party. And she's of a different race. And she's of a different, oh, I'm so glad that I'm away from them. And that makes me holy. No, it doesn't. It shows how perverted and how corrupt you are and how filled with pride you are, Simon. Listen to what Jesus says, because this is all that matters. Verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house. Now listen to the the shade that Jesus is throwing here. Listen to the indictment that he is dropping. This is a full beat down verbally. I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Who forgives sins? God. So which person reflects you more? It's not Jesus. It's either Simon the Pharisee. I can't believe they wore that. I can't believe they do that. I can't believe that. It's either Simon the Pharisee or it's the woman who's been forgiven much. And Jesus says, I love you. I know all about you, Simon. I know all about you too. But she's coming to me and I'm forgi- I've forgiven her. And I'm going to walk through those slain carcasses and I'm going to go to a cross and God will be just and the justifier of her and anyone who says, I need mercy. I need grace. I can't do it on my own. Save me. So what's your next step? 
as you think about Simon and you think about this woman, which one characterizes you? Because until you know, until I know the full depth of our depravity, we'll think we're Jesus in the story. We'll think we got it all together and everybody should just be like us and we won't have mercy and empathy for all those who are around us who are God is waiting to show love through us to them. Let's stand together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your promise given to Abraham and you keep your promises. Thank you for the law that shows us our need of a savior and thank you for Jesus, the savior of the world. And I thank you for your church and I pray, oh God, that we would love you and your church in a way that we are dependent on the Holy Spirit. Father, we need you, we love you and we ask you to work your will in our lives. Thank you that whoever the sun sets free is free to the uttermost. In Jesus' name, amen.